Amen. That is my favorite Christmas hymn. I'll tell you a funny story. It's a bit of a Saul-like story. I was um, in college for a couple of years. I, I, I sang with a, uh, the university choir. Not a great singer, as you could tell from earlier, but I was good enough to be in this choir. And one Christmas, uh, a group of us went from uh, Purdue and West Lafayette an hour down to Indianapolis to, uh, to hang out in the city uh, from the choir, and, and also we decided to sing some carols in, uh, in one of the squares, you know, so it was a decent group of people. Well, we didn't have a director, and so they picked the tallest person in the group to be their director, which was me, and <laughs> height does not determine how good of a director you are. I had no idea what I was doing, no idea the song was in 6-8 and needed to be directed a different way than in 4-4 four, four time. And we could not, see Johnny gets it, the rest of you aren't musicians. We could not figure this out. I got replaced. And, and the song was beautiful because we had a lot of good singers. Um, but there, there you go. If you have a Bible, turn with me to uh, the book of Philippians, chapter 2. Reading another familiar passage here in chapter 2, the bulletin says we'll read through verse 8, but I'm going to go ahead and read through the end of that passage, verse 11. The subject of our teaching is the incarnation, which this is week 2 of 3 in a series of sermons on Jesus' incarnation. And I've chosen to guide us through this uh, sermon series, not based on the uh, sort of systematic understanding of Jesus' incarnation, all the technicalities that we can learn from different parts of Scripture. Those things are important, and they're helpful. But I've chosen rather to focus on three of the, the people, or the groups of people who were there at the nativity scene when Jesus was born. Last week we looked at Mary. This week we'll look at Jesus in particular. And then next week we'll look at the the shepherds. In part because when you look at the incarnation, the the beauty of the incarnation and, and the power of the incarnation is not in all the technical details of it, but in the fact that a person, a person was born there, Jesus. And God, who exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who existed from the beginning of time that way, the second person of the Trinity became not just a divine person, but a human person person. And so as helpful as systematic understanding of what the incarnation is to our understanding of who Jesus is, and we'll address some of that today and some of that uh, last week and next week, in some ways to take the, 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 the subject of the incarnation and just look at it in those technical details is kind of like taking a living thing and dissecting it, and then wondering why 
it no longer has any breath or life in it. And so we can look at the beauty of the parts of it, but we need to keep in view, in close view, the person of it. The living, breathing person that God became human. And I chose today to read from Philippians because it explains not so much of the how this all happened, but the why. The why. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, became human. And it's not even the full picture of why, but it's, a, it's an important part of the picture and an awful lot of it. It says, so the, Paul, writing to the church, says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. For though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The grass withers and the flower falls but the word of our God will stand forever. You pray with me. Our Father, would you open our eyes to see and our minds to understand and our hearts to believe and follow. These your words. More beautiful than anything that we can see in your creation for this you've revealed to us out of your own understanding and out of your own design. Help us, Lord, with these things that are too marvelous really for us to behold if, if you don't show them to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the nice thing about preaching a series on the same topic is if you leave a question unanswered one week, you can come back to it this week, another week. And one of the questions I la- left unanswered last week was that question surrounding the book, you remember I talked about Jim Collins' book on business, Good to Great. And he presents the idea in that book that one of the secrets to particular companies' success is this amazing drive on the part of its leaders, and especially its CEO, coupled 
with a humility that essentially doesn't mind giving other people the credit. Seeing the good of the organization as more important than the good of the individual. And I said that that was helpful, but it can't be everything because we looked at three companies in his list where those companies have fallen apart since the book was written. And I I approached the question, well, then what is the secret of success? And where does humility as a virtue fit into that? It's really the, the least respected virtue in our lives today, in our culture today. People like humble people because humble people don't get in their way. But does a humble person necessarily make a good leader? And that's the topic, the title, the subtitle of this series is humble leadership for all of life. And so is there more to this humility that helps us to understand what godly leadership is? What godly leadership uh, is and how we do it and how we find it in Jesus. And, and that leadership may even change the way that we think about what success looks like. I want to look at this in roughly three points today. And the first one is the example of Jesus' humility. The second one is the reason that Paul and Jesus give us for living out humility. And then the third one is really the fuel, the motivation, the drive that God gives us for raising up humility as a Christian virtue. And along the way, I think it'll be more clear what the answer to that question is. Well, what's in it for me? Humility, that is. Is humility sort of the path to success or or not? So first, looking at Jesus' example of humility, it, it, it raises the question, and oftentimes uh, you may hear in different circles that, um, uh, you know, Jesus, uh, it, let me say it this way, if you're in churches that have undermined the position of um, miracles, if you're in churches that have given up a belief on uh, the miracles all throughout the Bible, most profoundly Jesus' resurrection, Oftentimes you see those churches looking at Jesus primarily as an example for how to live a good life. They look at Jesus' example of life as uh, a model for them to follow. And so they strip away the miracles and say, well, the people then, they're just misinformed and they understood this uh, differently. But we don't need to throw away Jesus altogether There are certainly those people who have thrown away Jesus altogether, and those people don't even go to the church for the most part. But there's still a a large contingent of people attending uh, large churches, old churches that still hold on to the view that Jesus is this good example of a, a moral teacher. And the backlash against that from those churches that still believe that the Bible is speaking truth and that miracles are very real has oftentimes been to neglect seeing Jesus as a moral example. Oftentimes, 
the, the attempt, well-meaning as it is, to say, well, Jesus, Jesus has done all of these things for us, leaves the Christian not clear on what we're called to do. It's kind of the opposite error of these liberal, uh, typically mainline churches that have abandoned miracles. The opposite error in many uh, churches, even some reformed churches, is that they never see Jesus as an example. They never see Jesus uh, as, some, as giving us an example to follow. But this is what Paul says in this passage right here. Complete my joy. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Humble yourselves, follow that example, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, just as Jesus demonstrated, count others more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see, Jesus has come not only to be the Savior of the world and to do many things that we can't do as we looked at last week. We're not Mary. No, of course we're not Mary. We're not Jesus. But still, Jesus has given us things to do that are following in His example. So as cheesy as the whole what would Jesus do bracelet movement was a few years back, there is legitimacy in it. How would Jesus think? How would Jesus act differently? Now, did you notice that the thing that Paul is telling people to do isn't so much some kind of action as a change in mindset? A change in the way you're thinking about things. He says, have this mind. Quite literally, think in this way. Psychologist uh, and writer from, uh, uh, from Stanford, Carol Dweck, has written a book on mindset that's really a great book. In this book, uh, she is explaining how different people that she meets and she interacts with experience failure. And she said, see, notice early in her research career that some people respond very differently to failure. For some, failure represents an overwhelming burden and squelches their hope and their desire to continue with tasks or do anything else. But for others, failure excites them almost. They fail at a task and it challenges them to go at other tasks or maybe do the same thing again and it, it, it enlightens them and they get hope from it. And these two very different approaches or responses to failure demonstrate what she calls two different, set, two different mindsets, ways of thinking. One she calls the fixed mindset. The fixed mindset is, is demonstrated by a, a belief that we're, we're just, our intelligence is capped. Our capability as human beings is limited. On the other hand, the growth mindset, she calls, sees this uh, 
sees failure as, as an opportunity to learn, to understand more as, as, as almost limitless potential with human beings. Now she applies this primarily to any kind of field, especially a uh, mathematician. One mathematician from Stanford has caught on to this and, and, uh, and produced a whole series of videos and taught classes on math on how people who consider themselves non-math people can learn math and how you can do anything in sort of that mindset of uh, uh, the modern-day mindset that we all have this great potential, we can do anything we set our minds to. And I think many of us have run up against that kind of, the limits of that thinking, although most of us would do well to press forward even further in our failures and learn from them. But I want to suggest that the Apostle Paul here is explaining why many of us become stunted in our Christian growth and Christian maturity. That there's something of a spiritual fixed mindset that exists in individuals and in the church that is directly linked to our understanding of humility that Christ demonstrated and that we're called to. Paul goes on in this letter in chapter 3 verse 12 to explain, look, I've not already obtained this. I'm not already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. See what Paul is saying is that he has identified himself, linked himself to the the concept of union with Christ, of what it is to be in Christ so closely that everything else falls away in its importance. In fact, what was going on in the, 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 the town of Philippi was that there were two groups who had both believed that Jesus was the Messiah and were proclaiming Jesus to be the Messiah. Only one of them wanted the glory for themselves. They had created this rivalry with the other group. They were jealous of the success of others and it impacted the way they ministered and they were also passing that jealousy down to others around them. Now as a minister of the gospel, I have to tell you that the temptation of jealousy of others in ministry and even of their success is so, so real, that I can identify with those who were creating these rivalries. 
Maybe you can identify with that in your own line of work, in your own family experience, in your own looking at other things, coveting other people's homes, their families, their jobs, their success, their happiness, their vacations, whatever it may be. That rivalry has entered into your mind to the point where your life is full of strife and anxiety because you keep looking at what other people have and you can't enjoy what God has given you in Christ. And to this, Paul presses in on this concept of humility and he encourages those who were trying to be faithful to Jesus Christ and experiencing the hostility that existed in the church or perhaps cross across churches in the same community or even homes as the gospel was going out and people were believing. And he says, look, you need to think about this completely differently. You have to have a new mindset. That mindset is actually a completion of my joy. And this mindset is this. Stop doing things from rivalry. Stop letting competition motivate your activity. Stop comparing yourself to others. More than that, look at the other people and consider their needs even as more important than your own. Now notice an important distinction he makes. He doesn't say consider their thoughts or their ideas, or their teachings more significant than your own. He says, consider their needs more significant than your own, more important than your own. Seek to bless those even who hate you. It's a language that we find elsewhere in the Bible. Now this brings us to our second point, and that is why should we be humble? The reason for humility, and I think many of us approach humility wanting it to somehow work for us. Wanting to see the fruits of our labors and being frustrated, probably like many of the people that Paul is writing to here, frustrated that it doesn't bear more obvious fruit, visible fruit immediately. We're afraid or we experience that people trample on our humility, that the loud mouths in the room get the voice when we step back and don't insist that we have our voice. Now that's not necessarily true humility. True humility leads in a powerful way. And not just setting an example for other people, true humility looks at all the people in the room and it asks the question, what does this person need? What do these people need right now? How can I change my priorities, change my mindset, change what I'm going to do in a way that doesn't necessarily meet my needs, but that seeks to meet the needs of others. 
that sits down and listens to people who have genuine needs and understands them without feeling the need to tell them how they should live their life. To give all of the answers. That in the workplace understands your employees and not just the tasks that you've given them to do, but their needs as individuals to feel like they're contributing meaningfully to the overall task at hand. Sometimes that means understanding their needs in their personal life as well when they're going through difficult times or even are physically sick. But oftentimes, it's just thinking about what this person needs to experience life as a human being and experience it more fully. Asking the question of children, of friends, of parents. What is it that they need most? Even including that in our prayers. God, how can I serve this other person? How can I serve these other people? And you see how that's a very different kind of leadership. That isn't even concerned first for the success of the organization as for the good of the people that you're leading. Because that's the type of leadership that Jesus demonstrates. It's the type of leadership that Jesus calls his shepherds, his pastors into to look at the congregation, to look at other people and to consider their needs more important than your own. It's been part of my motivation, by the way, even in preaching did you guys realize that in one month I preached on marriage and money, full sermons on each topic? This is the first time I've preached on either of those in a full sermon. This is a risky thing, and part of my motivation for doing that was because I realized that I was actually failing to serve you as a congregation by not explaining the importance of money in our lives and what we do with money and how it reveals what our priorities are. I was failing to serve to consider the needs of others more important than the needs of myself. Now this second question that's related to this came up in a conversation this week, and I think many of us asked this question, uh, this question, well, well, does humility work? Can I see it work? The related question that many of us ask, and, and sometimes my sermons may even lead this, is does Christianity in itself work? Does it work for me? As an individual, can I see a path forward and the the question that the Bible presents is not, does it work? And I think many of us kind of taste and see that the Lord is good, but it's not really taste and see, does it work? Because we can't see the long term. You ever been down here in Golden Hill and, and, and look down B Street? Actually, it's not B Street, maybe A. I can't remember which one. Look down the street in either direction. If you look down to the, the west, you can see all the way to the water. And there's a law that protects that line of sight. You can see all the way, you look to the east and you can see all the way to the mountains. And no buildings can be built that block that. Other streets, and I think this is B, have blocked it. City College built a big old thing right up on top, blocks the view. The problem with the question, does humility work for me, does Christianity work for me, is that our views are blocked, they're limited. We can't see the whole picture, but the question for Christians, and even if you're considering the claims of Christianity, 
the first question has to be, is this true? Is the incarnation true that God became a human being? Because this is a very different kind of explanation of who God is. Entering into the suffering of humanity itself. Than any other world religion gives. Entering into the problem so that he could lift others out. Remember that, that, that movie that Al Gore made? I never saw it. Inconvenient, an Inconvenient Truth about environmental uh, things. So I'm not going to get into the politics of that. But, but the gospel is an inconvenient truth. The gospel is an inconvenient truth because it, it, it gets in the way of what we think is our clear line of sight, our path to success. It redefines success in God's terms as serving others. Did you catch what the goal, the ultimate goal here that Paul's getting at? We, we think, I, I may say this, you may think it's humility. That God, Paul's, the goal is humility, but, but the goal isn't humility. He's very clear about this. The goal is unity. Did you catch that? Humility is just a means to an end. The goal is unity. This is what God desires among human beings. It's not this competitiveness Competition, by the way, is a powerful motivator. The goal is for unity of God's people. The goal is for unity in all of creation. The goal is for things to complement one another so that they all can work together. And that is a very different form of success than what even Carol Dweck presents which is primarily individual success. But the goal of God is a collective success. And his blessing isn't just that the church would be unified. In fact, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he explains, Jesus prays just before he goes to die. In John 17, he prays for unity for the church. And why does he say it? He gives a very explicit reason. He says, so that... So that many will see and believe. The goal of unity within even the church is always so that many outside the church would see and believe. A whole different mindset. But the view down that is so much clearer when we can put aside our own interests. And that brings us to the third point, and that is what is the fuel for humility? Because, look, we are afraid that people, if I don't look for myself, after myself, no one will. If I don't consider my own interests, no one else is going to consider those. And the beginning of being able to let that go comes in this amazing miracle that God did in Jesus Christ who was in the very form of God that is 
not entirely clear from this passage, but from other passages, John 1 and Hebrews 1, very clear that that form was God himself, not a lesser God, not a, a, a son who wasn't from the very beginning, but, but God the Son is forever, was forever. That God himself was born into a human family as an infant who could not care for himself. Took the very form of a human being. He did not give up the form of God. He did not give up the form of a human being when he was resurrected. He exists one person in two essences, in two, uh, two uh, concepts that are difficult for the church to grasp and, and understand. And yet... His humanity and His deity are completely joined in one without either being lost. Paul uses this difficult word of kenosis. He, he, uh, he made Himself nothing. He didn't hold on to, grasp the honor that He had. He set it aside. One person described it like a, a, a tribal chief who had a beautiful headdress and he had this position of honor. And a boy fell down a well and no one in the town was strong enough to climb down and rescue and carry this boy out. And so the chief set aside his headdress. And being the only one strong enough to climb down there, climbed down and rescued the boy, was he any less chief by going down into the well when he set aside some of his visible glory. When he took a humbler form. And yet he entered into the messiness of that well. He came down. No illustration is perfect. Certainly there are weaknesses in that. But Jesus has done this for you so that you know that someone has your interests in mind. The example of Christ's humility is something that we can try to emulate, but we can never attain it fully. Because we can't do as much as He's done for us. All we can do is demonstrate that humility to other people and point other people to this great humility that Jesus has shown for us. In the form of a, a leadership, a humble leadership, that when people see it, they will be off-put. They won't know what to do with you. It's a whole different approach to life than what everybody out there is living. It's like the letters, the letters that uh, Rosario Butterfield, a former uh, professor and teacher on um, feminism, former practicing lesbian, she wrote an article in the paper and she got a ton of letters in response to her her article, and many were from 
people praising her work who were not in the church, and many were from people in the church who were just slamming her article. And she had two boxes, and she put the letters from friends, supporters in one box, and she put the letters from haters in another box, but she got one letter from one pastor that she couldn't categorize. It was a whole different tone to his letter. She could tell in his letter that, she, that he loved her and cared for her. She couldn't categorize that with the, the haters, and yet at the same time he addressed why her thinking was wrong, her mindset was wrong. She couldn't put it in this box. And so it sat on her desk for weeks and even months. And she read it multiple times and wrestled with this letter, and she eventually came to faith in Christ and changed her mindset. This kind of humility that looks for the interests after the interests of others before our own is revolutionary. It's difficult, but it is world changing. Let us look not only to our own interests, but also to the other interests of others. And count the <coughs> needs of others. Others themselves even, as more significant than ourselves. Let's pray. Oh Lord. Help us to have this mindset among us. Like that of Christ Jesus. That though he had this great position of honor, became a servant of all. So that he could save many. In that he is glorified. In that, we can share in His glory when we follow in His example of humility. Help us to see this, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Earlier we read from Ruth. The story explains the concept of a kinsman redeemer. One who marries a woman who was uh, desolate. And restores her. This is a concept that Jesus has taken on himself and is our Redeemer, buys us out of slavery. The price he paid was to become a slave himself, a servant, so that we could be made free with him in glory. Let's sing, Oh, glory in my Redeemer. Mm-hmm.